Welcome to Friday, our second Friday ever. Ever. And our first official jump into our case and... A a big one. Yeah, and into our weekly swing of things. No more daily episodes. No more dailies. Woo! We made it. Right. There might be a few... Well, there will be. Not might. There will be some extra snippets on Patreon. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're going to start doing one a week for Faff It Out Friday. Yes. Right. So speaking of Fappin' Out Friday, this is the Fiercely Altered Perspective. Also known as the Fat Pod with Ember. And Quinn. Yes. And you can check us out on all of our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the Fat Pod. Right. We have a Facebook group called the Fap Lounge. Mm-hmm. And in the Fap Lounge, we've had a What's Your Perspective thread right. for the week. Right. And it's been hard since, it's a, whoa, since whoa. it has been one episode every day. Right. But we love the feedback and the interaction. Oh, yeah. That we're getting. We've had a couple people reach out to us personally mm-hmm. and emails mm-hmm. uh, with their stories. We've had a couple of people talk about their own personal stuff on the thread. Yeah. It's been really cool. Mm-hmm. So we're way excited to have that be uh, a thing for every week. Sure. Where we can all dive into it each episode a lot deeper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we need to clarify that we made a whoopsie mm-hmm. earlier in the week. Yes, we did. And... Uh, uh, Ember couldn't think of the Icebox Killer's real legit name. Mm-hmm. Um, the Iceman. Yeah, the Iceman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I threw a name out there that I thought was right, but I'm like, I like true crime and stuff like, or stuff along the lines of this, but by no means would I call myself a scholar on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I just threw a name out there and, well, we kind of ran with it. And we've heard a few different times that, boy, howdy, did we make a mistake. Yeah, well, I mean, you have an excuse. I don't. I was just tired and I was like, yeah, that sounds totally right. And it was. It was just the wrong dude. (laughs) So, I mean, sorry, not sorry. (laughs) Right, right. So, who was? So, we said Ted Kaczynski, Mm -hmm. which that is the Unabomber. Yeah. We were talking about Richard uh, Kalinske. Okay. And so, whoops. And I probably still even said his last name wrong. It's those names always mess me up. <laughs> Skis. I can't do them. Yeah. Yep. Instantly my brain's like, yeah, we don't know how to say that. Okay. There's K's, there's I's, there's U's, there's Z's. We don't. My brain's like, nope. <laughs> nope. No thanks. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I was trying to think about any other highlights from the week that we have had. It's been a good week. It has been. It's been. This has been one hell of an adventure. So you guys are aware. Ember and I had this great big plan of, man, we're going to get all this research done we're gonna sit down we're gonna record like 20 30 episodes and we're gonna have everything all squared away and we can just reach into a hat and say yes let's do this one Mm -hmm. and in typical proper american fashion we fucked off way too long yeah i mean we have episodes ready (laughs) oh yeah but you know some of them were gonna be too long and not something that we would want to do in our first week anyways right uh so we decided well for the first week let's do a little bit of everything yeah that we can let's let you guys kind of get to know how we work how we interact how our minds work mm-hmm. and you're gonna hear the demon cat howling in the background mm-hmm. <laughs> 
That's awesome. So occasionally you might hear an, a spiritual voice in the background that'll be slightly quiet. It's in our, that's in our assistant. Right. That's our local resident gypsy. Yes. <laughs> he helps us. Commentary. Yes, yes. Direction. You know. Yeah. Moral support. Yeah. 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 He's all right. Hello, everybody. How they do they? How they do they? <laughs> so. Yeah. All right. So we've talked about it that we've got a big case coming today. Oh my goodness, we've talked about it for months. Right. And oh, and here it is. Big case. Finally. And we've said that it's going to be a barrel of fun, that mm-hmm. it's going to be a barrel of laughs. Yeah, yesterday I'm pretty sure I was saying something about uh, our weather is calling for some snow mm-hmm. for Friday. Yeah. Which it actually is. Yes. So in our town that we live in, mm-hmm. we might be getting some snow. No. Correct. But how is that relevant to today? Because in Snowtown, Australia, <laughs> I doubt they're expecting snow today. I doubt it. It's, I highly doubt it's it. Kinda it's kind of hot there. Yeah, it's the summer. middle of summer for them. Yeah. 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 But that's today, the case we're covering is the Snowtown murders. Out of South Australia. Mm-hmm. And the biggest person that we have to thank for this case is our really good friend. Plus, she helps us run our Facebook page, mm-hmm. Sonia. Mm-hmm. She sent me her book, yep. her personal book. We had a book gifting, if you will. Yes. And she gave it to me a while ago. Mm-hmm. And it has taken so long right. to try to get this ready. And then we decided decided that we wanted this one to be our first big official case that we come out with. Right. And yeah, there's a lot more than what you, what I thought. Uh-huh. I was not ready for it to be so in depth. Oh yeah. And there's times where it is a little confusing mm-hmm. when it comes to who is who and what is what and how they all connect. Right. So we're going to try our very best. Right. And I can help uh, make those connections sure. as well. Sure. Because I've spent like three months reading it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So with that, if you feel like cheating and jumping the gun, which is completely okay yes. on Amazon or YouTube, you can actually go and pay and watch the Snowtown Murders movie. Yep. It's called Snowtown. Yep. And it's actually thanks to that movie, they wanted to do the movie, so they were actually able to get permission and information, and that's the reason why the movie came out, mm-hmm. which is also the reason why the information became more available for everybody, because before it had a lot of restrictions mm-hmm. but the it's movie a hard movie to follow it's so confusing you don't know who anybody is unless you watch or unless you know this case inside and out so by the time we're done with this case then you can go and watch it and you'll be like oh that makes a little more sense okay right right there's also uh you can look up on youtube for snowtown documentary mm-hmm. and that one you can also get some information off of it but it's still very confusing condensed right because with the snow town can we kick him outside yeah would you go close close the the garage door please get it get it so for the first part of today we're going to kind of uh recap the whole case Mm -hmm. and then we'll actually start into it so that way you guys know kind of where we're going with it what the base of the story is right so you're not left completely in the dark right yeah so with that though how many episodes is this gonna be i'm not sure (laughs) i'm not sure it will uh, 
how many episodes this turns out to be will depend on how much we talk right through the case right you know what i mean so how much we analyze it as we go yeah okay yeah. yep <laughs> it's a big case guys <laughs> yeah so it's bigger than any other case that i have ever wrote mm-hmm. so it it took a wonderful amount of time it was crazy to try to to learn this because um so the snowtown murders aka bodies in a barrel it all happened in south australia yeah and, well the bodies were discovered in snowtown however nobody was from snowtown right none of the people that were murdered nor none of the people that were doing the killing right snowtown was kind of like the body dump area mm-hmm. but they received the most recognition for yeah it. because this ended up being the biggest case in south australia yeah because it goes over a string of crazy murders <laughs> oh yeah yeah so our main guys that are in the story mm-hmm. that start us out uh is john bunting robert wagner uh james hit me valkus valkus every time i look at it it just goes away james valkus and mark hayden so the reason why that she gets confused on valkus is because it is v l a s s a k i s yeah and yeah we weren't sure and we watched a documentary on it and they were talking about mr valkus mm-hmm. and went oh, oh wow we would have murdered that one so these four um in one way or another would commit murders from august 1992 until may 1999 mm-hmm. so <clears throat> there was a total of 12 murders uh troy Yude, gavin porter barry lane susan allen just to name some of them mm-hmm. uh these murders were claimed to be out of an act of justice against pedophiles yeah so that's basically what john bunting and robert wagner would say the most mm-hmm. is that they were just doing their duty protecting kids yeah so in in their mind mm-hmm. for lack of a better phrase they're doing in their mind god's work mm-hmm. they yeah. they are being the archangel they are getting rid of the the impure the mm-hmm. the vile the monsters yes at least that was their perspective right in that's yeah solely in their mind oh yeah that's what they were looking at, you know that's how they were looking at it and we should give a warning right now mm-hmm. this case is going to cover not only pedophilia but homosexuality mental illness um mental disabilities mm-hmm. physical disabilities mm-hmm. he robert or john bunting especially says some horrible things a uh, very offlandish or outlandish yeah very just disgusting and we will be quoting some of those things because i'm we're not going to dress th- these guys up uh-uh. i'm not going to be politically correct in order to uh be politically correct because in these in these cases i want you guys to hate them as much as we do right <laughs> and i'm not gonna we're not gonna be able to do that if we're sugarcoating everything right so that's just a fair warning now yeah it's over the next couple of weeks yeah. it's, we're gonna have some rough times yeah yeah it's gonna get sideways Another thing is that a lot of people would go missing for a long time mm-hmm. and police, family, whatever would actually think that these people were still alive, mm-hmm. but they just didn't want to be contacted. Right. So that plays a key role in this story as well. Mm-hmm. And we'll eventually get to the point of why these guys really killed and the reasons behind it. So that's when, you know, we'll cover each of their early lives. Right. And then we'll also cover the victims in as much as 
of their lives before they were killed by these guys. Okay. So not only are we covering four guys that did those things, we're also co- we'll be covering 12 victims. Mm-hmm. So that's why this case is so big. That's a lot of people. Right. But we think that it is important. Right. And so, um, oh, another big shout out. We gave our shout out to Sonia for giving us the book and helping us because she lives in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. But we also have to give Sam a huge thank you because she went through and read all of our notes to make sure that we got things correctly mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to <clears throat> language differences. Right. Because most of the time we all speak the same, but there was a few things that I'm glad that I double checked. Right. So some of the numbers we're going to be talking about are almost hard to believe because mm-hmm. they're huge. Mm-hmm. They're big numbers. Uh, in Australia, mm, somewhere around 38,000 people per year go missing. Mm-hmm. That's 30, a lot of people. 38,000. 5,000 of those are just in the South Australia area, uh, which is where this story takes place. Some of these people disappear on purpose. Some tragically take their own lives. Half the cases of people are found within the first 48 hours of their disappearance. 99% of all missing persons are found within a year, either dead or alive, and only 1% that uh, don't. Mm-hmm. So Where they they don't know there's, anything. They, yeah, they're, they're a missing person, but they have nothing. Yeah, they are dust in the wind. Mm-hmm. Just gone. Well, and those, those numbers are pretty close even to what we have in America when we were covering our unnamed right. one. It's crazy right. that that many people go missing every year. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy that there's that 1% that no idea. That just goes. They're just gone. Mm-hmm. Are they alive? Are they dead? Are they what? Right. Where are they? Just poof. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. And so now we're going to actually fully dive into the Snowtown case. All so right. I hope everybody enjoys. Okay. August 16th, 1994, Finch brothers Jack and Ron would be working their 4,000 acre ranch in the lower light district about 50 kilometers or 31 miles north of Adelaide in South Australia when they would discover human remains. They first discovered a skull which had a huge dent in the back, likely to be the cause of death. So they immediately called police and the major crime branch. When police showed up, they uncovered a very shallow grave that was only about 10 centimeters deep and since the body was placed there, animals had scattered the remains all over the land. Right, and so I guess from accounts is Jack and Ron, they were these two little old brothers Mm -hmm. because Jack was 79, Ron was 76 Mm -hmm. and they just worked their whole, they call it a paddock? Paddock? Paddock. Paddock, yeah. Mm -hmm. And for us it's like a farm. A a ranch, ranch. a farm, yeah. Yeah. I mean they had a lot of land obviously Mm -hmm. and they also raised a lot of sheep. Yeah. Shreepuses? (laughs) Shreeps? Shreeps. Babas? Little baba bas? <laughs> um, <laughs> and they were out spraying. And we'll throw back a little tiny deal. Ah, yes, there was hues there, but we're not talking about wood this time. We're actually talking about bass. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Tossing it back. Nice. <laughs> nice. I like it. But these guys were just humble, cool, jokey. Farmers. Yeah. And they were walking along and uh, I think Jack was probably driving the truck and Ron was walking along and spraying the weeds. Yeah. And 
then they come, they see a hole, so they kind of go around it, and then they see something super white, mm-hmm. and so they stop and they thought, oh man, maybe it was one of the sheep. Right. You know, no. <laughs> nope. And then they discovered that it was uh, human remains, and then when everybody showed up, I guess some of the the pieces of this body were scattered for miles due to animals. Right. So they had to comb all. It, it'd be kilometers down there. Oh yeah, kilometers. My bad. <laughs> they had to scan all of the land right to get it all right that's a big job mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. um in fact uh police were there for three days to collect all the evidence okay and they knew it was a younger person but they weren't sure which at the time so immediately uh media or even some of the police thought that maybe it could be the remains of missing 12 year old go- girl rihanna burrow burrow and she is still she hasn't been discovered still to this day mm-hmm. she's part of the one percent Mm-hmm. And um, after all of the remains were collected, they were sent off to be looked at. Okay. Mm-hmm. The remains were found to be of a John Doe around 17 years old. He'd been severely beaten and dumped face down for up to roughly around two years before being discovered in 94. He was 172 centimeters tall or five foot six, had dyed copper blonde hair, and was left handed. Mm-hmm. No one claimed the boy, even with a $100,000 reward. How can the body of a 17-year-old boy be found and nobody has a clue? Right. That's somebody's kid. Mm-hmm. You know, that kid should still be going to school and... Right. And this, sadly, ties back to our mm-hmm. unnamed case earlier this mm-hmm. week. There's there's yeah. so many faces without a name. Yeah, because they found, they found his remains mm-hmm. and he was missing for at least two years before that, judging by his death. And so how there wasn't any missing persons that match that or anything. So you have a 17 year old kid that's been unnamed for two years already. Mm-hmm. And so after a while no one claimed these remains even with a $100,000 reward. And so after a while they just packed up his remains and cataloged them and they would end up putting it on the back burner for at least another year before we find out anything more. And what nobody knew is that these remains was the very beginning of this case. All right. Yeah. In 1995, Detective Superintendent Paul Schramm, mm-hmm. uh, he was put as the officer in charge of the major crimes branch. He hated that one percent of the, or that there was the one percent of missing people. Which I can understand. Oh yeah. Because that shit gives you the Force Whitaker eye. <laughs> right. You're like oh, solve it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Those people could be murdered, and that's a means or that means that someone was free and he didn't like that at all so with this new position he told everyone that on their downtime they would be working on this case yeah so if you're not working one case go pick a cold case yeah and you work on it until you solve it all right yeah so one case would land on craig patterson's desk in 1997 so 1997 is three years after the case had run cold for the remains found in lower light because they found those remains in lower light in 94 Mm-hmm. And technically, he went missing in 92. Mm-hmm. So we are already five years. Right. And we don't know this person's name. Yeah. Okay. So Patterson would get, would be a missing person report okay. saying that it was the disappearance of a 17-year-old Clinton Doug- Douglas Trezzy, born May 12th. Hey. Hey. Somebody else's birthday. That's pretty wild. Right. He was born May 12th, 1973, and he wasn't reported missing until October 26, 1994. 
45. Yeah, so he'd be turning 45 this year. Mm-hmm. He came from a violent family and they just assumed that he left to start a new life. However, they hadn't seen or heard from him since 1992. Huh. So if he was 17 when he died, uh-huh. that just seems so sad to me that you wouldn't even report your kid missing for three years. I get it though. I get it. Yeah. And the reason why I say that is uh, <clears throat> I'm an angel now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of. You're a little tattered, but you're there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I was 17 years old, mm-hmm. ooh. Danger. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Mama and Papa Hammond and I didn't get along very well. I was an ass. I was not very nice. I knew everything I needed to know about the world, and I made sure they were aware of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, boy, was I wrong. <laughs> boy, was I wrong. Whoopsie. <laughs> but I-, I can get that. Yeah. I guess it is. And especially if he came from... And it's early 90s. Well, yeah, no. But if he came from... A violent past. Yeah, mm-hmm. and not a not good past. Mm-hmm. I get that. At 17 years old, I'm an adult. I'm I, an adult. I, I'm i grown. I'm a grown man. <laughs> Stepping out and walking away. Uh-huh. I get that. Yeah. Still sad. Oh, it's very sad. Don't Still get me wrong. Me but, but I can see I can see both sides of that on... I can too. So... I get it. There's just that that mother part of me. Oh yeah. That um probably after three days I'd be like, hey, <laughs> right, this kid is missing. Yeah. I'm not gonna wait three years. I don't care how mad he is at me. <laughs> <laughs> So Patterson looked into the case and he had saw that the last record of Clinton was in May of 1992, probably right after he left his house. Mm-hmm. And he tried to seek help from the Family and Community Service Department. The last trace anybody had on Clinton was July 22nd, 1992, when he withdrew some money. Since that point in time, he had still been receiving checks, but nothing had been taken out of the account since that point. No, shit. Mm-hmm. So Craig remembered the case of the John Doe found in Lower Light mm-hmm. and was thinking, oh, deaths around the same time, same age, everything should fit perfectly. However, uh, the experts at the forensic lab thought the same thing with the missing persons report. And so they kind of did an analysis uh-huh. and the forensic uh, experts decided that they weren't the same person. So the person in Lower Light was not this missing person Clinton huh. is what they had said. Two, it was looked at twice. Okay. So with that, Craig Patterson decides to go over everything one more time. Mm-hmm. Just to make se- sure. Yeah, he's a seasoned veteran at 18 years and had been a detective for 10 before he moved to the major crime branch. He really wanted to give this a good look. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, he's he's vested into this now. He's yeah. He took his job very seriously. Good for him. Right. Good for him. So he interviewed people and found out that he was last living in a flat in Elizabeth, which is a northern suburb of Adelaide. When he disappeared, so did all of the electronics. However, all of his personal belongings stayed. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So that's weird. Hmm. You would go to somebody's house and all of their valuables that way that you right. could resell are gone. Right. But all of his personal items were still there. Huh. All, all right. right. <laughs> all right. So Patterson looked to see if maybe he'd left the country. Nothing turned up. 
up. Clinton never ever owned a passport and had zero rec- records of anyone leaving under that name. So that's yeah. that's pretty what do you much. What with that? Yeah, I mean, if he doesn't have a passport and there's no signs, no talk, no nothing. Okay. Craig wanted to go back to the skeleton found in lower light, but since experts said no, he moved on. It'd be four months until Patterson had any kind of lead into the Clinton case. And it would be when another person is reported missing. Mm -hmm. He would find out that the missing person is connected to the Clinton case, which will be the first breath of air into the case since it had ran cold in 1992. The new missing person was by the name of Barry Lane. Right. So, Joanna Smith had reported her ex-fiance Barry Lane missing. Barry was born on August 7th, 1955. Joanna had explained to police that she had met him at a Salvation Army and they grew close quickly. He was 42 and confessed that he had once been a homosexual but had been cleansed through religion. Within two months, they were engaged but living in separate houses. However, they broke up in April of that year, so in 97. Mm -hmm. After some angry kid she didn't like named Thomas Trevelin moved in with Barry. She didn't like him. So even though the relationship had ended on that sexual level, they still remained friends. Joanna says that the last time she talked to Barry was in October when he called saying that their car broke down in Claire and would take them a couple of days to get back. And he wondered if she could go and check on the animals and collect the mail for him. Okay. And then a few days had gone by and the neighbors only saw Thomas return back to the house. Then no sign of Barry or Thomas till about a week later when Thomas's grandma came to the home where Barry and Thomas were living to get his belongings because Thomas had committed suicide. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. Hmm. Exactly. How Craig got and got a connection to the Clinton case is when Joanna told police about something strange Barry had told the or told her a couple of months before he vanished. That he had once helped a man named Robert Wagner dispose of a body up north, and that body was of a young man, Clinton Trezzy. Of course, this gets Patterson's blood pumping. A boy, no one has seen since 1992, five years later, come to find out that he was probably murdered and now the person uh, who had confessed is also missing. Mm-hmm. He has to be kept up to date on any information on Barry Lane. Right. So that's kind of like, you get so excited, you hear two names connecting, and then it's kind of like, shit. Right. But now this person that has the answers to where Clinton could be is also missing. Right. So was this guy really murdered or was he not? Like, what do we... Oh, yeah. so you just pile on more questions. Right. So seven months would go by with nothing to go off of either case. They looked into Barry's bank accounts and found that he was still making regular withdrawals. Hmm. So maybe he was just on the run. Okay. They weren't sure. Uh, police figured that he was just fine. And when his sister Crystal called saying that she still hadn't heard from him and that he was not just a homosexual but a cross-dresser and a pedophile. Oh. Police infirm- infirmed her. Infirmed in- her? Yeah. Her Police in- <laughs> informed her that he's still alive. They're seeing the-, the payments coming out. Probably just doesn't want to be bothered. However, on the other side of that phone call in the missing persons uh, department, they feared the worst. Mm-hmm. That he had probably been murdered but without anything else to go off, they have to just kind of let it hang out. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Constable Janet Forrest would be the one to look into Barry Lane's case deeper. She saw an entry about one of Barry's old neighbors, a man named John Bunting, mm-hmm. saying he had saw Barry a few weeks ago in Murray Bridge, 74 com- kilometer 
kilometers or 46 miles east of Adelaide. When she called the phone number provided, she spoke with John Bunting's girlfriend, Elizabeth Harvey. Elizabeth seemed least impressed with the phone call or the fact that Barry was missing. Elizabeth said how Barry used to be a neighbor, but she doesn't know where he is, that he was a pedophile and can't be trusted. Yes, John said he saw Barry a few weeks ago, but they should go talk to Robert Wagner. He was the one who used to live with him anyways. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So there it is again. Robert Wagner, the same name, same man Joanna said Barry had helped dispose of Clinton. However, when they called Robert Wagner, he followed with John Bunting's statement saying he saw him a few weeks ago, but nothing since, and that they had lived together, but not for some time. Robert just assumed he had moved. Hmm. Yeah. So when Craig Patterson received this information, he immediately set up interviews and to look over the case again, and he was able to find a statement made by Thomas Trevelyn's cousin, Lenore Penner. Okay. So she had given some powerful and terrifying insight into the character of Thomas. Uh, Lenore tells police how he was mentally disturbed. He had schizophrenia. Okay. He often drifted in and out of reality and many times dove into the fantasy that he was a member of the military. He would dress in military clothing and he wasn't able to snap back out of that fantasy. He very rarely lived within reality is what she was saying. She also said that Thomas struggled with anger issues and she never knew what was true or what may just be his fantasy. However, with the news of another of other people involved also ending up going missing, she was wondering if his suicide was actually a murder. This is where she gave police an entry she made uh, in her diary on October 30th of 1997. And that's the same month that Barry Lane went missing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Her diary read this. Tommy came over tonight, swore me to secrecy. He told me that he and two other friends killed Barry Lane because Barry had sexually abused them. They wrapped him in tape in a garage bag or garbage bag and left him for four days. Then they came back and put his body in the boot of a car. So for us Americans, the boot is the trunk. Correct. Okay. They would kill all of his pets and put their guts in with the body as well. They then drove somewhere and put Barry's body in a 40 gallon drum and left it. Now they will uh, have to dispose of the drum. He thinks they are either going to dig a hole and bury it or go drop it into the ocean. I don't believe him because none of these stories he ever tells me seems to be of his own experience. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you have somebody that's calling mm-hmm. and they're saying, hey, I remember this name. Can I tell you this story that came from my cousin? Right. And then, hmm, Barry helped kill somebody else? Mm-hmm. Huh. Mm-hmm. Kind of sounds like a Clinton thing, too. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, Lenore goes on to say how Thomas said that Thomas and his friends tortured Barry for social security information that they planned on taking it out each time it was paid and splitting it. However, Thomas was afraid that the other two were after him and that they would kill him. Four days later, he ended up dead by supposed suicide. Mm-hmm. This was huge, but like Barry's sister, Crystal, Lenore was told not to worry because Barry was still alive, that they were sure it was just the ramblings of a delusional mind. However, with all this new information, Patterson wasn't sure, which right. I mean, you have this missing person, you have somebody that's confessing of a murder saying that, oh, by the way, they also plan on taking his social security. Yeah. So it wouldn't look like they're missing. Right. So that's just trying to be the investigator. It would be really hard because you also have to jump through all those legal loopholes. Oh, yeah. You can't just be like, well, this person said this, so 
I'm 99% sure I'm just going to start acting on it. Sure. You know? Well, and, and I don't mean this to come out crass, but if they're dealing with a person that is already known to be, quote, mentally unstable and schizophrenic, is it trustworthy? Is it a viable source? Is it just verbal diarrhea? Right. It, eh? It's hard to tell. Right. While looking over the records again, they knew Barry received fortnightly pensions of $353.20 and the cash was always pulled from the ATM that was close to his last known house. After October 30th, the ATM withdrawals moved to a different part of North Adelaide. So he either moved right after Lenore was told that he was murdered or never told anyone. Or maybe the ranting of the sick boy was more credible than they had thought? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard. Mm-hmm. So on July 1st of 1990, Police set up cameras around the new location where the transactions were being made, and they just kind of waited. Mm-hmm. A week later, something happened. Patterson gets to see a man using Barry's card withdraw $360 and toss the receipt. After getting the receipt and a closer examination of the video, they see a man making the transaction was not Barry Lane at all. Instead, it was Robert Wagner. Huh. Name again. They decided to wait two weeks when the pension comes out to see who comes and takes the money out. Maybe Robert was just doing Barry a favor? Right. They have little to nothing to go on with this, So, and you can't make an arrest just off of one offense. Okay. I mean, I've gone and pulled out money for somebody else before Mm -hmm. when they've been sick or whatever. Sure. So... Sure. When the next pension came around, they watched Robert take the money again. This time, they followed him as he goes to see John Bunting. Mm Mm-hmm. There's that name again. Uh Uh-huh. Another name they've seen in the missing person reports. With this, they decide to trail both of them when they could. However, other cases came first and the resources were slim, so nothing could be consistent. Right, which would be so frustrating. Right. You have these names that are all connected. You know that it's right there. Right. It keeps coming up and keeps coming up and keeps coming up. But since it's not a major crimes report yet, you work on it when you can. Yeah. And when we have the right resources. Yeah. Sorry, not, you know, we do what we can. Sure. Yeah. Patterson would try to have Robert Wagner and John Bunting's phone tapped in October of 98, but they only had six people to do that and they were already on all of the case or on other cases. Right. And at this point, all that they had was fraud at best. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Yep, that's, that's all they were. Eh. Yeah. Eh. I mean, your hands are kind of tied. Yeah. It, even though it seems like enough to look deeper, it really, they didn't have ground to stand on they didn't have anything to say no for reals like this is it this is something we really need to invest our time this way right right and it's it's easy for us to be like well why not obviously obviously you have enough to look at but you have to remember the everyday cases that they are doing anyways oh well that and hindsight's always 2020 yeah always like for us it looks obvious but for mm-hmm. them at the time i mean they had that little feeling but you can't make arrests off of feelings. Right. So, uh, police would later find the names of Robert Wagner and John Bunting on another case of a missing persons from back in 1996. Hmm. In the slow process of going over all the old missing cases that hasn't been solved yet, that's how they kind of miss this connection. Sure. Her name, 
Her name was Suzanne Allen. She was born July 26, 1949. She was one of seven children and she had mental issues. Mm-hmm. And she moved out when she was about 14 years old. Okay. This is another crazy thing. All these kids moving out way too young. Right. By 1983, she had had four kids and two ex-husbands. She decided to leave her kids with their dads and travel to North Adelaide suburbs and had little contact with her kids. Okay. In 1993, she had a live-in lover and his name was Ray Davies. Mm-hmm. Also known as a de facto in Australia, that cohabitation. Okay. You're together, but you're not married. Okay. He was 19 years younger than her, and he too suffered from mental illness. So Suzanne and Ray's relationship fell, but she allowed him to live in her caravan in the backyard. Now, What's a caravan? Like a motorhome? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Some people... Oh, okay. I thought you were asking... Okay. Just, just no. clarifying. No, you're good. You're good. Quinn, Quinn you were thoughtful. I'm not. <laughs> So some of his perversion part is that he liked to hide in the bushes and he liked to jerk off when young girls walked by and he would often expose himself to them. However, he had left Suzanne's house sometime in 1995. One of her neighbors, uh, Marilyn Nielsen, talked about how she figured Suzanne had also moved Hmm. uh, because she had been talking about it anyways. However, there were some weird things that happened after she quote unquote vanished. In the end of November of 1996, Suzanne's brother, John Martin, shows up looking for her. Okay. And John went and talked to the neighbor, Marilyn, and said how Suzanne left all of her belongings except for her car, and so keep an eye out for her. Hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Six days later, on December 3rd of 1996, Marilyn sees some people at Suzanne's house loading up her stuff. When she confronted them and asked to speak with John, a man told her that he had no idea who that was. Alarm bells started to go off in her mind and so she went out or went home and called police mm-hmm. when police showed up they talked to the men who said they were friends of Suzanne or yeah Suzanne's and she had asked them to help move her stuff and gave them a key cops of course believed these men but took down their names and the names of these mysterious men were <coughs> John Bunting and Robert Wagner right so again again and the one shitty thing is that they didn't know about the case at the time and so they also, in their mind, when they went to go and look, John Bunting and Robert Wagner were just no, yeah, they no were, names. They were of no interest. They're just your regular there would be no reason friend to, helping somebody move. Yeah, there would be no reason to remember their names. Mm-hmm. So, on December 10th of 1996, Suzanne's brother John reported her missing. The last known report she had was an insult charge back in January of 96. Mm-hmm. And it says that the... She was also charged along with Robert and John, but the charges were later dropped. And I'm not sure exactly what those assault charges were. Mm-hmm. So then on February 1997, two months after being reported missing, there's a note of Suzanne's name in a bank with a forwarding address to Murray Bridge. Hmm. The address was that of John Bunting. Hmm. Weird. So police call him and he told police that Suzanne was in the middle of a huge family feud and she was just trying to stay hidden from her family. Okay. She's just staying with me. She doesn't want anything to do with her family. Please don't tell him. All right. Possible. Right? So within a few months, 
months, police actually lost, lost, police lost contact with Suzanne's brother, John. He had moved and never gave them forwarding information, so they figured John's story, John Bunting's story, checked out. If there's a big family feud and now we can't get a hold of the brother who reported her missing, right? Meh. All right. Case yeah. closed. All right. All right. Mm-hmm. In April of 1998, uh, the police would have to look back into that case when Suzanne's sister, Joan, calls saying she still hasn't heard from her sister. They see that Suzanne is still making regular withdrawals from her account and sold her old car to Elizabeth Harvey, John Bunting's girlfriend. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So police tell Joan not to worry. She's still alive and well. Joan, of course, didn't believe him. Right. And a few months go by with zero leads and then another missing missing person comes flooding in. On Good. November 26, 1998, people are being questioned about the woman or about a woman named Elizabeth Audrey Hayden who was last seen on Friday, November 20th, 1998. Elizabeth and her husband, Mark Hayden, dropped off their children, William and Christopher, to her brother Garion's that night. Yeah, to her brother Garion's that night to stay the weekend, and the parents were to return Sunday to get them. On Sunday, Garion's other sister, Gail, calls to say that Elizabeth had run off. Mm -hmm. Later, when Mark comes to pick the boys up, uh, he told Garion that she was simply just home sleeping. So on Monday, the boys walked er, walked two hours to get back to Garion's house saying that she was missing. Garion went to confront Mark and Mark said she came home drunk and then left a few hours later with another man and drained all of his accounts. So that's good. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So police find out that Garion was suspicious of Mark. He was known to uh, be abusive in certain ways with the kids. He would beat them for minor things and and uh, Garion often wondered if these two younger children were better off in foster care, like what happened with the rest of Elizabeth's children. Um, they also knew her other sister, Gail, and her son, Fred, lived in the garage behind the home, and that Gail had a boyfriend named John Bunting. Huh. Hmm. John was often over because John and Mark were friends, and Robert Wagner was, of course, always there. They were consistently known as the Three Amigos. Huh. Yeah, Three Amigos. Amigos. I said that kind of weird. No, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. So, again, another missing person, all with the same names. Mm-hmm. When they bring in Mark Hayden for questioning, he gives the police this report. And this is direct quotes. Right. This is all in quotes. Approximately one week before my wife's disappearance, I told her I was not happy with the way the house had been. <clears throat> or, yeah, with mm-hmm. the way the house had been let to become so untidy. I then went outside to work on my car. She vented her anger to her sister Gail and then went outside in tears. The days after this, she commenced cleaning the house. I did not notice any tensions between my wife and her sister apart from this one incident. Our marriage was reasonably happy up up until her leaving me. Sometimes she would go out in the morning and not return until mid-afternoon without explanation. The day of our marriage breakup, I got up at 9am. My wife was already up and sitting in the lounge room having a drink of Coke. I took my, or I think my sister-in-law and John Bunting was in the lounge room also. I had a drink and took my medication in the lounge room and watched a little TV for a while. At around 11 p.m., I put my car behind the gates and changed the starter motor. Then at about 12.30 p.m., I moved my car back to the driveway and then washed my hands and went to lie down as it, I had been ill most of the previous week. Poor baby. Mm-hmm. About 3 p.m., I got up and started to install a deadbolt 
on my back door. My friend Robert Wagner arrived while I was sleeping, but stayed and ended up helping me for a while. About 4.30 p.m., my wife comes into the kitchen and stated or started the evening meal. At 4.45, the sister-in-law asked me to take her to Rinella, Adelaide's southern suburbs, to meet someone about a dog. Left at 5 and got there around 7, waiting until 8, and then left when no one had showed. On the way home, I stopped at the telephones at the Boulevard Caravan Park to let my wife know we were on our way home, but couldn't get through, so I stopped again outside of Salisbury, er, outside the Salisbury Library. John Bunting answered, saying uh, she was ranting and had locked herself in our room. Gail and I arrived around 10.30 p.m., and John tells us Elizabeth made a pass at him, and when he refused, she became upset. I went into the room, and she accused me of sleeping with her sister, Gail. I then denied those accusations and reminded her that we had never had the opportunity and I would not have done anything if I had. Mm -hmm. She then continued to accuse me and also calling me lazy and good for nothing. Uh I then left the room. John and Gail then went out to get something to eat, leaving me and Robert in the lounge room. Uh, While they were gone, my wife came out of the bedroom and again accused me of being unfaithful, called me a lazy good for nothing son of a bitch. She then said she was leaving me and would ring her boyfriend to pick her up down the road. About 2 a.m. I went to bed and at 4 a.m. she returned home drunk and got into bed and passed out. I got up around 10.30, left my wife in bed alone. John and Gail came in from Gail's room at around 11 a.m. and I told them she had returned. They went out uh, to leave us alone to sort it out. My wife got up at around 11.30. I asked her where she had been and who she was with. All she would tell me is that was someone I didn't know. I asked her why she had done this and uh, she accused me of sleeping with Gail again. She then said she was going to, uh, going to go out again. I told her to really think properly about this or about what she was doing. She then told me I may as well go visit my father in the nursing home and said she would wait until I returned but was gone when I got back around 4 p.m. As I also took a, uh, took a drive along the beach to think. I have not seen her since that day day right so that's just confusing you know (laughs) just because one they had to bring him in for questioning you would think first if that's your wife you're already going to be there you don't need to be brought in for questioning Mm -hmm. second it's also weird that the elizabeth stayed with john bunting and robert wagner while mark and the sister go hours out of town to Mm -hmm. get a puppy for her you would think why wouldn't gail and the boyfriend go sure and husband wife stay home sure right so that's suspicious to me in Mm -hmm. my brain hole okay you know and i'm sure that that might be suspicious for police as well Mm -hmm. when they're taking that down so detective senior constable stone was on the elizabeth case and it was moved to a top priority because they had suspicions that maybe mark had murdered his wife okay uh gail and mark shared the same story but they needed to talk to john and robert as well four days later john and robert come in and gave similar accounts that she had made the pass at John, got mad, left for another man. And that's what they knew. Okay. Mm-hmm. So another call came in not long after that from a concerned relative and this relative tells police to look into the home. Detective Stone went to the house and found her purse and some other information shoved in a closet along with four firearms. Why would she leave and not take her purse? Mm-hmm. So they s- decided to seize all of it. They returned the next day and they searched 
the garage and the backyard. In the garage, under parts and rags and just dirt, they find a lot of insect casings mm-hmm. and a weird smell that kind of lingered in the garage. Okay. A weird deathy smell. They also start ordering more searches and let the crime lab start to come in. These are all things that Mark Hayden, John Bunting, and Robert Wagner didn't like at all. Mm-hmm. By November 27th, Janet Forrest, the one working on the Barry Lane case, was able to get some information on Elizabeth's disappearance and sees John Bunting's name again. That damn name. Mm-hmm. The Clinton and Barry case also had John and Robert's name, uh, and the same with Suzanne Allen's case. This wasn't something everyone would know, however. With this information, she tells Craig Patterson, mm-hmm. this lights a fire underneath Craig and his partner Brian Swan, because they had been working on these cases for almost a year and, or yeah, almost a year and a half by this point. Yeah, so they've been trying right. to make connections and they've just never had enough. Right, right. Uh, John Bunting and Robert Wagner were always names, but they had never had anything to do, you know, they they'd never had anything enough to do anything with this information. Right. However, now it's far too many cases to be a coincidence that these uh, missing people were probably murdered, so Patterson then calls Stone, who took down Mark's statement, and tells Stone to keep following these men and keep Patterson and Swan up to date, but don't tip them off. They still don't have anything to stick. Ugh, how frustrating. Oh my god, so you've got information for days that's starting to pile up, starting to add up, starting to gather, mm-hmm. but they don't have anything. Right. I mean, they have things, but they don't have enough. Yeah. And you don't want to tip them off because then they might disappear. Poof. Right. And you don't want that. So finally, with this di- disappearance of Elizabeth Hayden, the vanishings of Clinton Douglas, Trezzy, Barry Wayne, Barry Wayne Lane, and Suzanne Phillips Allen were all brought Phillips over. Allen? Phyllis. Did I say Phillips? <laughs> Suzanne Phyllis Allen were all brought over into the major crimes and put on the forefront of the investigation. This was the exact break that Patterson and Swan needed because now they could put in all the resources they've wanted to for the last year. Mm-hmm. On February of 99, they start watching Robert Wagner and John Bunting's movements and tap their phones. They also started tracking Suzanne and Barry's accounts and set up more surveillance to see who and when money transactions happened. Of course, what they they find is that Robert and John are the ones taking out the money. Another interesting yet not surprising fact is when John moved to Craig Moore, <laughs> which is a suburb in February, that's the same place Susan's money was being taken out of. Also, the new address for information was a false address. Right. So now it's like, oh, good, good, good. Mm -hmm. So by April of 1999, they also start thinking that it's probably likely that John and Robert played a hand in another disappearance that happened in late 1995. And that was a vanishing of Ray Davies, Hmm. Suzanne's ex-lover. Now, earlier, we thought that he had just left. However, he did leave, but he never came back. Mm -hmm. When they look into him, they see he too is getting regular payments and making withdrawals. And most of them were all over the counter. Perfect. Oh my god. Whew. <laughs> so, moving forward. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody knows we just had a little bit of technical difficulty and... Uh, our computer just shut down. Yeah, it, it said it was bedtime. Oh, my goodness. We panicked but we're good now we're good (laughs) we're so fine yes so when they look into ray davies they see that he too is still getting regular payments and making withdrawals and most of them were all over the counter so face to face Mm -hmm. Uh, so when they pull the surveillance they see a man claiming to be ray davies but the man behind the counter was none other than john bunting huh Hmm. huh well may 16th 1999 after tapping their phones they know about two places the men talk about often snowtown and munta snowtown and munta were the two places so craig and brian or craig patterson and brian swan and a field intelligence officer vicky ram mm-hmm. decided to hit snowtown first snowtown is a very tiny place with a population of less than 500 positioned about 140 kilometers or 84 miles north of adelaide in south australia it's also known as the heart of the farming for land wool and wheat settlers came to snowtown in the 1840s and established it in 1867 yeah and snowtown's one of those tiny towns where people come in and out usually the kids as soon as they can they're old enough they're gone right you know it's just one of those little tiny places mm-hmm. so as the team was headed to snowtown with a surveillance team they get a call that robert and john are also on the move and they aren't far behind them. Hmm. So the team has to pull over and they wait as they watch the men in Wagner's brown Ford station wagon drive by and go to a house occupied by a guy named Simon Jones. They were at the house for about an hour before John and Robert left. Okay. Now, after they were gone long enough, they have Vicky walk by to see if she sees anything that would give them any sort of a lead. Okay. Like, why were they at this guy's house? Mm-hmm. And they hit a jackpot because they had found a Toyota Land Cruiser. This was a huge break because it's the same Land Cruiser that used to be a permanent fixture at Mark Hayden's house and oddly enough, when his wife Elizabeth disappeared six months before, so did the car. They had Mm. no idea where it was. Here it is. A neighbor had saw Mark loading the Land Cruiser with black garbage bags and then never ever seeing it again. So why was it over here in Snowtown? Mm -hmm. So they knew that they were going to need to get search warrants and that they would be back to talk to Simon Jones. Okay. Mm-hmm. On May 20th, 1999, a little before noon, a huge team meets up to go to 25 Railway Terrace, the address of Simon Jones. Some of the team included major crimes detective Jane Dickinson and Mark Wilson, also a local investigator Rick Day, crime scene examiners Gordon Drage, Andrew Bosley, and... Bronwyn? That's probably Bronwyn Marsh, mm-hmm. along with sen- senior constable Ian young they were to seize the toyota and anything else that may link uh bank documents or anything else in relation to the missing people they also had local police and a tilt truck to tow the tr- or to tow the car so a tilt truck is a one of the flatbed wreckers right the truck that has the flatbed with the hydraulics so you can drive things up onto it mm-hmm. and then bring it back down mm-hmm. that was one of those questions i remember texting <laughs> sam and son the fuck is a tilt truck <laughs> help me help me help me, help me. <laughs> so when police knocked on the door simon answered and his wife and kids were also home simon was shown the search warrant for the house and the land crew 
bruiser and immediately folds, giving them all the information they may need. He tells police that the Toyota was dropped off by his friend John Bunting and Robert Wagner and that it had been towed to his house. He also tells them how it used to have black barrels in it and when the neighbors started to complain of the smell coming from the Toyota, Robert and John came and took the barrels out and moved them to an old bank they were leasing just across the street. The smell was rotting kangaroo carcasses from what the family was told by John and Robert. Simon handed over the key to the bank saying that the men let him use it to store his electronics um, that he wasn't using for his business. Hmm. So officers McCoy, Stone, Drage, Marsh, and Day went to the old red brick building that hadn't been used as a bank in over 40 years. The rest of the team stayed behind to continue the search at Simon Jones' house. All right. Uh, Drage would be the one to work uh, to work the camera and entered through the side of the building. Inside the building was extremely cluttered. Cardboard boxes, TVs, computer stuff, a shopping docket, also known as a receipt for <laughs> air fresheners, rubber gloves, and garbage bags were strewn everywhere. Mm-hmm. The further they go, uh, go in, they look into a cream-colored, or they're looking at a cream-colored vault door that was locked. In the far top left corner, Drage noticed a fingerprint that he dusted and took back to the Jones residence. While there, he grabbed one of the other, grabbed his other camera out of his car and asked Simon about the vault door, to which Simon said the tumbler lock was broken. He just needed a piece of galvanized fencing wire to get in. While Drage returned, uh, yeah, returned, it only took seconds to get it open. A black plastic sheet had been taped over the cover, taped up covering the entrance with a slit down the middle uh, that was also taped off. Between the vault and the makeshift entrance was a wallet, two rolls of duct tape, or yeah, two rolls of tape, two keys, and a lined, or yeah, a lined piece of notebook paper. Once they broke the seal, they were hit by the horrible smell of death. Mm-hmm. Stone led the way and Drage recorded behind him. Right. And the one cool thing is uh, the documentary that we had watched which we'll, we can put in the show notes they actually show that that the actual footage. Video. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really cool. Mm-hmm. So we'll definitely plug that in so everybody else can go and uh, check it out. Yep. So when they get in over to the right there's a big thing of plastic sheeting down on the ground. Mm-hmm. And on top of of it stood six black barrels with screw top lids. Uh, there was handcuffs and a black handled knife were on the top of one of the barrels and on another barrel sat two more black handled knives and green rubber gloves. To the left sat a pale green lounge chair and a plastic tray full of knives, disposable gloves, um, a wooden handled saw, and a belt. Okay. In the back left corner sat another lounge chair and beside it was three white bottles labeled hydrochloric acid plus uh, a can of air freshener sandstone or sand shoes also known as tennis shoes again really glad that i asked right in my head sand shoes would be something kind of like a flip-flop yeah or like those weird not they're not weird but those sandals um like river rending yeah like tevas or something yeah yeah so i was i would have been way off (laughs) (laughs) sure sure and many black garbage bags some full of stuff others just empty detective steve mccoy called major crimes in adelaide stating they Mm -hmm. believe they'd found the 
body, but they probably or there's probably more here than what they think and they aren't sure who it is yet. Right. They're like, okay, we know we have five missing people so far. There's six barrels here. I don't know how many people are are in here. Mm -hmm. We have no idea what we're looking into. Mm -hmm. So this bust all happened in less than three hours. Okay. So they knocked on Simon's door just before 1 p.m. And just after 3.30 p.m., they had more police on their way. Simon was being taken down to the station and a very uh, clear indication they could finally get to the bottom of this case that Patterson and Swan had been working on for over two years. By early that evening, as more and more people started showing up, Superintendent Paul Schramm uh, briefs his team on what to say to the press until they can come up with more information. They just say they believe that they have uncovered a huge drug bust. Sure, this explains the police presence, but drug busts are usually less of a media frenzy than uh, yeah, rotten corpses in a body or in a barrel. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So, forensic team works quickly on labeling each item, bagging evidence, fingerprints, etc. 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 Are you lying to me, etc.? <laughs> it's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> right. If you haven't watched Split, go do it. Yes. All right. So, they label the barrels A through F, and at 10.10 p.m., Drage is the first to open the barrels A and B. Inside was a thick, dark liquid, an obvious human human remains along with various items of clothing and rubber gloves. In barrel E, you see a hand sticking out almost as if to be reaching up for help. And in barrel F, a severed foot cut off at the ankle is at the top. Clearly, these people were not only murdered, but also dismembered. Hmm. Well, now we know of five missing people, so having six barrels was puzzling for police. Uh, made even worse when they see that some of the barrels obviously contained more than one person. How many people had been murdered? Where are these bo- or yeah, were any of these bodies in these barrels any of the missing people? Mm-hmm. The slew of questions comes flooding into everyone's mind. Of course, some of these questions will have to wait until evidence can get back from the lab. Speaking of questions, mm-hmm. do you guys wonder if we're going to continue on or if this is the end of this episode? This is the end of this episode. Oh, oh. shit. We're making decisions right now. Yep. This is where we're going to end it. So. Yeah. We know of some of the names by this point. We know we have Clinton, Barry, Suzanne, Thomas. We know some of these names. We know Elizabeth Harvey or Elizabeth Hayden is also in the mix. We know that they have been following these people. Mm -hmm. John Bunting and Robert Wagner are on almost every single missing persons report. Right. Both of their names. Right. For that area for the better part of most of the decade. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they just uncovered eight barrels, which they have confirmed have body parts in it. And in that documentary that we watched. Eight barrels? Six barrels. Six barrels. Okay. I'm jumping ahead of myself. You'll find out that there's more <laughs> oh shit easy <laughs> easy throttler back easy easy but wait there's more <laughs> you, you totally billy mazed the shit out of that i did i was i'm getting excited i'm getting ahead of myself <laughs> but they know that they have found six barrels and an unknown number of bodies mm-hmm. within those barrels mm-hmm. huge bust yeah so that's where we are at now okay next but week. wait a minute oh. wait a minute yeah 
Where's these two dudes at? Right. This is nighttime, 10. So they know the next morning they're going to have to go and make some arrests. Uh-huh. Because as it sits right now, they've found these barrels. Mm-hmm. They have these bodies in these barrels. Mm-hmm. But they don't have Bunting and Wagner. No. But they at least know now, thanks to Simon Jones, that, oh yeah, John Bunting and Robert Wagner are always over there. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be harder for them to try to say, I know nothing of this. Right. And they finally will now have enough evidence to make a fucking arrest. Finally. Finally. Oh, and that was the biggest thing that I was upset with when making, when we were researching all of this. And right. And I was trying to write this up. Right. So next week. Yeah. We're going to go over exactly what all was found in each barrel. Mm-hmm. We're going to go over arrests. Mm-hmm. And we're going to hit into some other things. Sure. Some confessions, maybe into early life. I don't know. I don't know how far we're going to get next time. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. So we're going to end this now. This is our first episode of Snowtown. Mm-hmm. Part one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the discovery. Yeah. 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 The discovery. Yeah. So real quick, we're going to give out any shout outs tell you of another podcast to listen to and then we will let you go sure go ahead all right well my first and foremost and we didn't talk about this but i'm doing it anyway Mm -hmm. if you guys like comic books Mm -hmm. if you guys are into that type of a thing keep your eyes peeled a very very dear friend of mine uh his his daughter Mm -hmm. yep we talked about it in our very first episode yep she is coming up with a comic book it's called sugar glider and the link for that will be in the description Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm uh yeah. yeah i i'm tickled pink man like i'm very very excited for them absolutely they're they are on the path for something really really big and we're just happy to be a part of it oh absolutely a part of it for nothing more than to say we know those guys yeah that's that's what we're yeah we're just a support that's it <laughs> right right and yeah they're going to be getting out there and yeah they're going to be getting bigger and and advancing further down that path but i could not not say something about that so please keep your eyes peeled because sugar glider's coming soon and it's <laughs> it's fucking rad it's awesome um another quick one is if you like true crime if you want your cool true crime subscription box you need to go over and sign up at just killing time yes dot org you will not regret it i cannot wait until our next box shows up yes uh you guys can follow us on any of our social media we will probably do live openings when we get our boxes or whatever. Sure. So people can see. But you definitely want to do that if you like true crime at all. Yeah, it's it's cool as cool can get. Mm-hmm. So my next one is, uh, talked about it already before on our first one. Uh, if you or anyone you know has a majestic man mane. Man mane. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You have face carpet. Yes, yes. If you, if you are rocking a beard or a goatee or... And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the length. We, you know, in in badass beard care, um, there's guys that have short couple of day stubble beards. There's dudes that have beards down to their belly buttons. Basically, he's saying you don't even have to have a beard, but you're going to want to want this stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, I rock a goatee most of the time. Sometimes I get lazy and I don't feel like shaving my cheeks, my sideburns. And so I let it grow out. I never, ever have the itchy stuff. Mm-hmm. Never. Their products are amazing. Oh, but wait. There's you don't more? even need to have facial hair to use their products. Because I'm staring across the table. And thank 
God, you don't have facial hair. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> you know. But yeah, I, I use it too. I use it on my hair. Mm-hmm. And my hair has been growing so much faster. Yes. So pretty. It's nice. Very nice. Very nice. So be sure to go to Badass Beard Care. Ta- wow. Yeah. I'll let you do it. <laughs> be sure to go check out BadassBeardCare.com. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are a veteran, they offer veteran discounts. Um, they have their club site, which if you sign up for reoccurring orders, it gets you a discounted price. Uh, and you can set it up for a shipment every day, a shipment every week, a shipment every month, six That's months, cool. whatever. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and hands down, the best customer service you will ever find. Perfect. And hit us with our your other one. Okay. So to go with that, do you like the... Uh, quote-unquote old-timey mustaches that are waxed and curled or... Of course. Or... any fun style like that like your most people would picture a santa claus mustache mm-hmm. well if you like that kind of thing go check out can you handlebar yes they i use their primary and their secondary wax on my mustache and uh as wrong as this is to admit i got stuck working for three days in my big truck and didn't get the opportunity to shower or anything along the lines of that and i was uh ruining a pretty decent funk however damn did my mustache look good right three days so nice yeah so just check them out i mean can you handle bar.com i believe okay so now you have just killing time sugar glider yep badassbeardcare.com yeah can you handle bar.com yeah we also have uh our promo that we're going to be plugging in at the end of this yeah from our friends over at based on a true crime perfect they are also a married couple perfect chelsea likes true crime david likes horror movies they come together make magic it's good business one of their most recent one was of course uh, my favorite chick flick ever which is natural born killers <laughs> <laughs> that that is a wonderful chick flick it really is it's the best love story i mean i don't know Thirty thousand miles of graceland is also or three thousand three thousand three thousand miles of graceland i was trying to go way further yeah yeah <laughs> You driving to Snowtown from Utah or what? I sure am. I sure am. (laughs) But anyways, uh, we'll play their promo. Go rate, review, subscribe, do all that fantastic stuff. If you like what we've been saying, if you could leave us a review on iTunes, that would be really awesome. Please. We've had some amazing reviews so far, both Mm -hmm. on iTunes and on our Facebook page. And we just really, really appreciate that. Absolutely. Those are the things that help us out the most. Plus, um, it helps us gauge where we can... we need to be you know as far as moving forward with the podcast yes one of the great things about us doing things so quickly uh every single day is that we've been able to we'll be able to rapid grow Mm -hmm. because we did two months worth of podcasts in one week in a week so uh it may have been a little bit crazy but it's actually really good for us so hopefully we can learn and grow even quicker oh that and and it's proved to us that that it's doable that it's capable that that put us in a time crunch put us in a bind we're gonna get it done yeah we might make a couple of mistakes and not be able to read a calendar very well hey <laughs> but and hey. we might mix up our people yeah we mm. might you know we might give you a unibomber instead of you know whatever <laughs> but that's just we did that to make sure that you were you guys are listening yeah that was yeah, totally yeah, intentional yeah, that, that was it 
that was it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, really quick shout out to our new uh, Patreon members, Felicia and Tara. You guys are awesome. Uh, super appreciate it. If anybody else wants to come and join us over on Patreon, it's just patreon.com slash fiercely altered perspective. There'll be extra uh, episodes. Yes. Sneak peeks. Yes. All that kind of stuff. Uh, we'll get better about our Patreon. Yeah. Well, and, and to our Patreon people, thank you and bear with us. Yes. This week, like we've already explained numerous times. Oh, the last few months have been insane. <laughs> it's been a shit show. So, but, I mean, thanks for thanks for being a pal. Absolutely. We promise after this episode, we're going to get into a much more organized structure, into a much more organized routine, and we will take care of you peeps as much as you take care or taking care of us. So, right. much appreciated. Yeah. So with that, that marks the end of Snowtown Part 1. Part 1. We will see you next week. Yes. Until then, fap on, fap on. (laughs) The fappers. (laughs) Fap on, fap off. Oh, Jesus Christ. The fappers. (laughs) Yeah. All Uh, right. Goodbye. See ya. I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. And we co-host Based on a True Crime, a podcast where we discuss the real cases that inspired some of the most gruesome crimes and criminals to grace the big and small screens. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play if you're interested in hearing the true stories behind some really great movies, including In Cold Blood, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, and Murder by Numbers. So grab some popcorn, with extra fake butter topping of course, and join us as we explore just how much of the movies that kept you awake at night are real. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.